Welcome into Inside the Pylon, the podcast. Chuck Zada and Mark Schofield are your hosts, and this is our first post-Christmas show and our only post-Christmas show of 2015. It's actually our last show of 2015 as well, which hard to believe that about four months ago we started out with our first podcast ever. Now we're doing our last one of the year. So I do want to welcome in Mark Schofield, my co-host here. And Mark, hope you and yours had a very happy, healthy, and safe Christmas. We did. How was yours, my friend? It was good. It was a uh, little little toasty. I was down in Florida, played a little golf, didn't play nice. well, but I uh, still got out on the course and got to uh, hit a few balls, take a look at some gators, and, you know, in general, have a pretty good time down there. Not too bad, not too bad. Fairways and greens, at least? Uh, I mean, which shot are we talking about? The first one or subsequent ones? I, I eventually got to the green. Let's leave it at that. That works. What about uh, What about you? What'd you get up to? Um, I got a what one might call a drone some others call it an unmanned aerial vehicle i got a drone from santa so i've been playing with that this is not Um, an armed drone is it no 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 unless you're my cat my cat is terrified of it because i've been flying it indoors (laughs) it's been kind of rainy in the dc area so i've been keeping it inside and you know the kids go to bed i bust it out of its box and kind of torment the cat with it so that's been fun always good always Always. good um and we still we're, we're now closing in on week 17 of the nfl season and I have yet to hear from Taylor Swift. I'm guessing you have not heard from Adele? I have not. It looks like pre-Super Bowl show is going to be you and I, my friend. All right. Well, I'll, I'll get a little uh, little bit of practice in and hopefully... We're going to take some lessons. <sighs> lessons can't help us, man. No, nothing can help us Le- in that department. Lessons can't help. But let's, uh, let's chat a little football here. Recapping uh, some of the Week 16 action that we saw. F- probably biggest story of the week, Panthers no longer undefeated. How, how did Atlanta do it? One big play, really. I mean, you know, Carolina got off to a good start in that game. Touchdown on the opening drive. They kind of looked to have control. Um, gave up a touchdown, so it's 7-7 at the half. Atlanta misses a field goal Yep. Um, to start off the third quarter. Carolina capitalizes with another field goal to take a 10-7 lead. And then a third and 13 situation, Julio Jones, man, I mean, he's running the deep post pattern against Tampa, too. And this is a lesson maybe for um, you know, some of the Cincinnati receivers that we saw last night. Keep running. Because he just keeps running. He's got Luke Keekley on him. He's got a safety on him. Matt Ryan breaks the pocket, makes a throw downfield, kind of a jump ball situation. And Julio Jones just makes a tremendous play. And that one big play, that 70-yard touchdown, it, it kind of you know gave Atlanta the spark to close that one out. You, you know what I found interesting about this game? And, and it, this is just kind of looking at it on, on a macro level here. There were only four punts in total, I believe. Yeah. It was it was a game that had a, a lot of long drives that were you look at the length of drives here and first drive from Carolina 11 plays 80 yards taking up 5 minutes. Atlanta comes back with a 16 play 80 yard drive taking 923. So you're already through the first quarter then with two drives but it wasn't like these were offenses that were inept but they they simply they were grinding out yards as opposed to there really weren't a ton of plays of any significant dis- it, it was a lot of a lot of slow and steady wins the race almost was the sense I got. And Carolina, in particular, you look at the running game they employed there, 20 rushes for 155, just consistently grinding out yards in the running game. Yeah, it was one of these games where teams, you know, they couldn't finish drives. I mean, they were yep. finishing drives with field goals or missed field goals, at least with Atlanta. Um, you know, and it's just another indication that, look, it's hard to win games in the NFL. It's hard to win division games in the NFL. It's hard to win games on the road in the division in the NFL. And that's what Atlanta, but that's what Carolina was facing. You know, and you know, it's a shame for them that the undefeated season ends. Always nice to see, you know, a team I'd love to see a team do it someday, nineteen and 0. 
get those guys in Miami and be quiet for a little bit, but it won't be this year. And and my question, I guess, is you, you look at Carolina and how they played in this game, and the defense gave up 20 points, which in today's NFL isn't, isn't a bad way to, to go about things. But my question is, is the Carolina offense, and, and look, it's probably an overreaction on my part, but is this somewhat of a template for how to contain them and prevent them from at least you know putting up in that 20 to 25 point range they need in order to be competitive in the playoffs? I mean, I'm always hesitant to use things like templates or roadmaps or you know yep. game plans or things like that when you see you know just how hard it is to win week in and week out. Right. I mean, I think the the, the real kind of takeaway from this is that you know who else in the NFC is going to slow them down? Probably maybe Arizona, but other than that, I mean. Is there a team that really stands out to you right now that you know could go into Carolina and win a divisional round game? You know, I, you, I was going to say, if if you go back a couple weeks, I'm probably sitting there and saying, okay, the, the Seahawks are probably a team there, but then they go out and lay a stinker against the Rams at home. Yeah. And, you know, they Seahawks had been on, what was it, a nice five-game winning streak, I think, beating some decent teams in the process. They beat the Steelers, Vikings. Uh, you know, they beat a couple decent teams there, and then some some easy wins against the Ravens and Browns. But that Carolina team, as you said, probably going towards an eventual matchup uh, with Arizona, which I think would be a, a phenomenal game in that championship round, don't you? I mean, a, a phenomenal game, kind of a nice clash of styles with what Arizona does offensively in that vertical passing game with Bruce Arians and the things that Carolina likes to do, a little bit different style, relying on the run a little bit more. Um, that, that would be a great matchup, but I mean, these things, how often do we, do we see them play out that way with one and two actually meeting in the championship games? Yep, it's, it's very true. It's, it's so rare to see that. Uh, but let's, let's go over to the other big game, and this was <laughs> this game probably featured one of my favorite plays uh, from this season, actually. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to turn it over, turn the mic to you, my friend. Take the, take it home. Well, I, I want to talk about this field goal here. And if, if you don't know what this field goal is, what I'm talking about here is the Brandon McManus 45-yarder that was, and, and reading ESPN, it says wide left, but it, it was beyond wide left. And I've it seen barely this. barely stayed in the stadium. I've seen this once before, actually. It was my, my junior year of college, and we were playing Princeton, and I, th- I think it was Princeton at least, and playing against Princeton, and our starting kicker had a chance to win the game in regulation uh, and essentially just completely hooked a – actually, no, it might have been against Colgate, but completely hooked in pretty much the same fashion about a 39, 40-yard field goal that ended up pretty much by the pylon in the corner of the end zone. Ooh, and I, I want to talk about how this happens because – you know, a lot of people said, oh, it looked like he had never kicked a ball before, and it looked like, well, look, this this can happen. And to be honest, it does happen in practice sometimes. It's just it's a pretty rare occurrence, and so you don't see it a lot in NFL games. But there's two real ways that it can happen. The first way, and kind of the more common one, is that you actually, you essentially hit the ball on your ankle and make contact so high up on the ball that it's very much like a hook in golf where you're just kind of hooking right around the ball and it comes out with a low trajectory, spiraling a little bit off axis, and pretty much dies just like a duck, just like that did. And my first thought was that that was what had happened here. was It was a high strike that just whipped around the ball, and, and that's what we were going to see. I dug into the tape a little bit deeper. I watched you know a couple different slow-motion replays. I watched a couple different things. And what it turned out you actually had there, and this is a little bit more unusual, was it was, called, it was, it was caused 
by McManus's toe wrapping around the ball and pretty much that toe-making first contact on the outside of the ball instead of torque coming right through the middle, as you would expect there. And, you know, what I, what I personally took away from it, actually, is Brandon McManus came back in overtime and made a big kick. You know, only a 37-yarder, but coming off that, I mean, that's a pretty embarrassing kick to make on a big national stage in a Monday night game. And came back with a 37-yarder to, to what eventually won the game in overtime. Show me something in terms of his ability to bounce back there. Yeah, I mean, it, does, is that the bigger takeaway for for you from where you sit? Is not the fact that he missed the the first try, but that he came back and drilled the eventual game winner. Yeah, it's that's what you like to see from kickers because as much as people like to think kickers are robots and they should never miss, they do. And what you want to see is how do you bounce back afterwards? And McManus is a guy who in his second year in the league, his first year struggled a little bit, making only 69% of his attempts on really only 13 attempts. He didn't have a ton of uh, action last year coming in partway through the season for the Broncos. But this year, up in the 85% range, much more consistent for the Broncos. And I love the fact that despite the fact that he had this this miss that was a, look, you, you and I can say it, it's, it was a horrendous miss. He came back, drilled that kick for the game winner. And that's that's big because when you're a kicker, you are on an island. It's uh, you probably say the same thing about quarterbacks to a certain extent, but quarterbacks you have a lot going on in the play, and they're expected to miss throws. Kickers, you're on a, you're truly on an island there, and that's I think uh, what makes this impressive to me is that comes back, steps up, and, and pretty much drills that game winner right after that miss. So I was impressed by that, and and I think it really bodes well for him heading into the playoffs. I do want to go to our first guest of the day. Now we are joined by Doug Farrar from Sports Illustrated. You can follow him on Twitter at SI underscore Doug Farrar. And Doug, I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks. Uh, glad to be on. Love your site, and uh, it's great to talk some football. Thanks, Doug. And in particular, I want to talk to you about something uh, that you actually posted on Twitter a little while ago that you were working on, and this is some Seattle game tape that you were breaking down that you kind of teased, and I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a preview of it. Yeah, the article actually, as we're talking right now, just went up on SI.com. I spent, um, Seahawks PR staff was very helpful. I got to spend about 40 minutes with Michael Bennett and Cliff Averill in the Seahawks D-line room. We watched a bunch of tape and really got inside the heads of what is, in my mind, the best 4-3 pass rushing duo in the league. Uh, Bennett's number one in pressures this year, tied with Olivier Vernon from the Dolphins and Averill is third. And, you know, Bennett's obviously an interesting guy anyway, and Averill had a lot to say. And I think the thing that, you know, people always look at offensive lines and how interdependent the players are. I don't know if people understand how much defensive pass rushers have to work together, especially Bennett, who's more of an inside guy, and Averill, who's more of an outside guy. Over and over and over, they were talking about, well, okay, Averill, you know, comes out and up, then it goes in and down and things like that, and they work so well together. And that was the main piece. That was the main thing I took out of that. But yeah, it was it was a good education uh, from definitely two of the smarter guys doing this. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like it would be uh, quite a room to be in with those two. Obviously, just completely terrorizing offensive lines the last couple of years here I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the Minnesota Vikings as well who I know you wrote about coming off 
uh, their win this weekend and now heading into a big matchup against Green Bay pretty much for the division here and I want to talk to you about what you saw from them and what your expectations are facing Green Bay this weekend just because uh, if my math is right I don't believe Teddy Bridgewater has ever beaten the Packers. Uh, yeah the Vikings are 0-3 with Bridgewater at quarterback and you know, he's had a couple of really good games, and I think that's partially uh, he's gotten a little better protection, although Matt Khalil um, and T.J. Clemmings are still sort of interesting on the edge. Um, their backup centers played really well. Uh, I was talking to Sam Monson uh, for the SI podcast today, and he brought that up. And, you know, I think North Turner's doing a slightly better job of helping Bridgewater with scheming guys open, first reads. You know, when he had that, I think he's had – either seven or eight games this year where he hasn't even thrown for 200 yards, and part of that is managing his throws. But part of it is, I think, early in the season, North Turner was running an offense straight out of 1984, which is just run guys in a straight line and maybe you have a curl on the slot. But other than that, I mean, in today's NFL, you really need to scheme your guys open. I believe that uh, vehemently, and I've said so very often. So I think on the offensive side, I mean, you obviously have Peterson, but they're starting to break things open in the passing game. And, I mean, that's bad news for the Packers because you talk about not scheming guys open. I don't know what on earth Mike McCarthy and Tom Clemmings are doing with that offense, but it's they have uh, regressed schematically to a significant degree. And the amazing thing is I haven't seen any change all season. Like, they firmly believe you can go out there and just run ISO routes all day and get away with it. And I just don't think you can. So I, I give Minnesota the edge at this point. Doug, looking at that Green Bay offense, is the answer for what ails them kind of what they saw this week from Arizona? You've written about yes. how Green Bay likes to rely on a lot of vertical routes, ISO routes. Arizona does that, but they also have other options for Palmer with an underneath crosser or an isolated yeah. curl route or some other choice for him if the vertical game isn't there. Is that Green Bay's sort of answer, even though we're in Week 17? Well, they need some kind of answer. I actually talked to Bruce Arians about this because the thing they'll do, and uh, Greg Cosell of NFL Films, who obviously we all know is probably the best tape guy in the business, he told me, a while back, that what Arians does is something he picked up from Sid Gilman of the old Chargers in the AFL, which is if you have a, like a vertical cross on the backside, you've got two backside receivers running a switch release or just straight goes, you always have someone either in your quarterback's line of vision or coming from the peripheral to uh, the quarterback's line of vision as an easy opening. So as you intimated, right away if the backside stuff doesn't work or if the front side vertical is covered, you always have someone to at least get a few yards and keep going. And this year, the Cardinals have been doing a ton of that with Larry Fitzgerald in the slot. Well, he'll, he'll run a backside drag route. And, you know, Palmer takes his five-step or seven-step drop for the vertical stuff, and if it's not there, well, he's got a, you know a, his guy in the slot who's running that drag route, and nobody's better at discerning openings in zone coverage than Larry Fitzgerald. So he's always got a guy open. I think, you know, again, in today's NFL, you've got to have that first read open. I mean, or a second read open or something open. And it's just amazing that the Packers don't understand that. Doug, I want to turn and look at the, the AFC here now. And in particular, 
I know that you also wrote about what was going on uh, with the Patriots and the Jets in uh, the the matchup on Sunday, where obviously we had the uh, apparent confusion at the start of overtime. Talk to me about how reduced the Patriots' offense was in terms of what they're able to do with the limited personnel, both on the offensive line and the receivers they're missing. Well, it, it's interesting because they've gone through so many schemes, obviously with Brady, so many different concepts. And right now it's just it's, 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 it's funny that outside of the fact that Brady obviously can't run like Cam Newton, the Panthers and the Patriots kind of have the same offense at this point. With Jonathan Stewart hurt, it's basically hope your running game can do something and just throw a bunch to your tight end because your receivers are not going to be con- consistent. And the thing about the Patriots, ideally, they don't need great receivers, but guys like Edelman and Amendola, they understand option routes. And the Patriots run more option routes than any other team in the league. I mean, their playbook is just an ode to the option route and adjusting what you do to where the defense is. And that's one of the reasons why they're able to go through so many different offensive systems over time because they're not West Coast. You know, they're not three-vert. They're not this or that. They're not spread. They're sort of everything based on their opponent. And, it, you know, as a really against the Jets, you get to this line of demarcation where you can say, well, as long as they have Belichick and Brady, dot, dot, dot. And I think this year it's, it's kind of like 2009. Um, where there's just there's there's so much regression from a roster perspective that you wonder how they're going to get it done. Doug, looking at the game, we're taping this on Tuesday. Last night, Denver, you know, punched their ticket to the postseason with a great drive led by quarterback Ross Osweiler down the stretch in that overtime. Showed some mobility on that third down play to extend the play and make a play, keep the drive alive. What have you seen from Osweiler, and do you think that now this is really kind of his team going forward? You know, a couple of things really stood out to me about that game. And the first one is the way Gary Kubiak adjusted the tempo of the offense in the second half in overtime. And that impressed me because I've known Gary Kubiak for the most part to be a coach who was kind of going to stick with what he had no matter what. And sometimes the no matter what meant that he got his lunch eaten. And I was really impressed with, how they adjusted on offense to a quicker passing game and also just a quicker tempo, which forced the Bengals to, A, stay in their base formations longer, and, B, have more defensive reps. And you could see early in the fourth quarter they were gassed. They were missing tackles. They couldn't keep up. And certainly in overtime it was even worse. And the other thing is Wade Phillips um, decided, or whoever was doing the calls, decided to call in more zone in the second half, which is a good way to go because – Obviously, playing as much man as they do, it's a big toll on any cornerback, no matter how good he is. And their guys are obviously great. Um, as far as Osweiler, I think ideally he's an under-center quarterback who's mobile enough to run boot action, which, of course, Kubiak loves and runs more than most. Um, but I think he's going to be really dependent on a running game, and I don't know where that running game is going to come from with the offensive line the way it is. And that C.J. Anderson, the inside zone run uh, for the touchdown, that was sort of the ultimate distillation of what they want it to be. It just really hasn't been. So I think right now he can be a legit starter in a complementary system. Um, I, I think he has the temperament and the intelligence and the arm to be you know, their, their guy going forward. Obviously, they believe in him a lot. And I think it helps him to sit, 
desperately to sit behind Peyton Manning and learn as much as he has because he doesn't really seem to be negatively affected by pressure. I mean, they were down 14 to nothing and then 14 to 3, and he just came out and said, all right, let's run this, let this, you know, newly distilled offense where I have to call more plays, and it's more of a check with me. He has to do more at the line of scrimmage, and he did it. That was really good. Outstanding. Well, Doug, I appreciate you coming on with us today. Uh, thanks again for joining us, and I hope that you and your family have a uh, happy and healthy start to 2016, okay? Uh, very same to you. Thank you so much. Doug Farrar from Sports Illustrated, and you can follow him on Twitter again at SI underscore Doug Farrar. And, Mark, I do want to go into our Harry Stamper all-go offensive play of the week now, and I believe that we are doing, is it the Kansas City Chiefs? That's right. We're taking a look at Kansas City, perhaps the you know hottest team that nobody's talking about here with our Harry Stamper All-Go Play of the Week. It's brought to us this week by Stamper Oil for over three decades. If they've told you that there's a place on this planet or another that couldn't be drilled, Harry found a way. And Chuck, I want to look at what turned out to be the game-winning touchdown here. It was a, a throw from Alex Smith to Travis Kels late in the second quarter with about 36 seconds left or so. And it kind of gives us a way to kind of come full circle on the Chiefs. We haven't done a lot on them this year at Inside the Pylon, but um, early in the year for a Week 2 preview, I looked at how Kansas City was able to scheme Travis Kelce open against Houston and how that might portend for Carolina, who was playing Houston in Week 2. And two of the things that kind of stood out was, one, getting the tight end isolated on defensive backs, either by scheme or formation, either in a 3 by one where he's the single receiver or one time they – put him with two other tight ends next to him, but he was the outside guy forcing the uh, cornerback to cover him. And then having him run routes, kind of breaking over the middle post routes to be able to put his big frame between himself, the defensive back, and the football. And we saw that on this play. What really stood out to me, it's uh, another three-by-one alignment um, on a a first-and-ten play at the 13-yard line. He's on the right side all alone, and he's got a short split from the right tackle. Now, Cleveland's in their 4-2-5 nickel. They've got cover one, so they've got a quarterback covering Kels in a one-on-one situation. And because of where Kels lines up, there's a lot of real estate to cover between where he starts and the outside, the sideline. So because he starts in close to the formation, the cornerback's thinking out route. He's thinking corner route. He's thinking you know an out route near the goal line. So he starts with outside leverage. He puts himself angled outside of the tight end, where he has help to the inside of the middle of the field with the free safety. What happens as Kels releases, he's going to run a post route, but when he comes up the field, he doesn't go straight. He bends it to where he's actually, where he starts well inside the numbers, between the numbers and the hash mark on the field. He gets to about the middle of the numbers before he makes his cut. So he widens himself. Not only does that set himself up for his break towards the middle, but it brings him away from the free safety. So once Kels makes his cut to the inside, he's widened the cornerback, So the cornerback still has outside leverage. He's pulled himself away from the free safety. So when he cuts to the inside, there's a bigger throwing lane for Alex Smith. And it makes it a much easier play. If Kels simply starts straight up from his initial starting point and then breaks, it's a really narrow throwing lane. And that free safety is a chance to make a play in the football. So it's just a really small, minor little thing, but it pays off in a big way. Mark, is that the kind of thing that is coached into this play when it's when it's being uh, in, delivered to the to the players, or is that something just that he picks up naturally? And I, no, I, that that's part of the the play structure in the assignment. Okay, when you're out there, wide receiver. I mean, I only played it for one year in college, but every pass route, 
every play, every scheme, you were told a starting position to start off with. So if you're running a slant route, you typically lined up bottom of the numbers to give yourself more room to make that cut. If you're running an out route, you might line up top of the numbers or just shaded inside of the numbers a little bit, like Kel says here, to give yourself more room to break to the outside. So every receiver has an indicated designated starting point. So this was a design that they put into the system to basically gain separation at two levels. One, against the cornerback when he breaks to the inside, and two, against the, away from the free safety. So when he makes that cut, the free safety is not there to make a play. What, what have you seen, and I know that you haven't watched a ton of tape on Kansas City, but... In terms of the relationship, the rapport between uh, Kelsey and Alex Smith, you know, you look at them, they, they've completed about 72% of the passes between Smith and Kelsey. It, it seems like they generally are on the same page as well in terms of how those routes should be run, exactly what they're trying to do on them. Yeah, it seems like they're on the same page. And Kelsey's another tight end kind of in what we're seeing with the Rob Gronkowski's, the guys that are a really tough matchup. I mean, on this play... Granted, scheme helps get him open, but he's working against a defensive back. You can try to put a linebacker on him, as teams have done. I wrote earlier um, when they, you know, they started one of five. They righted the ship with a win against the Steelers. He had a catch on a big drive, matched up against a linebacker. You know, he's quicker than most linebackers. He's bigger than defensive backs. He's just a tough matchup. So it's a great security blanket, much like Brady has with Gronkowski that Smith has in Kelsey. Yeah, and certainly. Kelsey only being 26 years old, potentially a lot of runway out there for his career. Uh, I do want to go now to our second guest of the day. We are joined by Dr. Andy Guider. He has been on our program a couple times before discussing the use of his game maps from the Q5.com. And Andy, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much, Chuck. It's great to be here again. Definitely. And Andy, we're, we're close to the end of the year here now. And so I want to start off by talking about some of your predictions that you made earlier this year. Because we all make predictions, and most of the time, at least with me, I'm completely wrong about what I think is going to happen. But I want to talk to you about some of the ones that you had built based on your game maps and, and the tracking that you've done. And so the first one I want to talk to you about is with uh, one of your predictions for Miami and Dallas continuing to improve unless there's an injury problem. Talk to me about what happened and what you saw there. So that was uh, you know, one of the... the two teams that stuck out to me uh and again i'm you know i'm i'm looking at this from a sort of a purely analytical or data standpoint you know i'm sort of limited on the film aspect of it but you know so i kind of sprinkle in a little bit of some of those off-season moves that they did and i i really felt that dallas was going to be a team that was that was on the rise you know and it uh, although unfortunately it, it it showed that it is one of those teams where they are so dependent on that quarterback position I think a lot more, you know, almost every team really is dependent upon good play at that position. But, you know, I, I thought they had really built up on the defensive side of the ball uh, over a sustained period of time. So I was, I was very impressed with what they had done. I, I thought this was going to be a year. And, you know, I do think, though, that, you know, next year, again, if, if they can keep that quarterback position healthy, you know, I, I'd look for that team to be one of the better ones, uh, especially with kind of what's going on in that division as well. But, uh you know, the other one with Miami, you know, I really thought that, you know, with their signing uh, of, uh, of the big D tackle and their Sue, I thought, I thought that was a really strong move. And I, I really thought they were going to be a team that would, that would take that step uh, and sort of continue to build. Um, but, you know, it, obviously that just, that just wasn't the case. You know, one of the things I had seen in, in some of the numbers was, 
you know, they had not performed well in the first quarter of games, you know, performance-wise. I know score-wise as well, but, you know, and that was something that, that they weren't able to correct, you know, and obviously it costed a, a head coach's job, but, uh, you know, from a from an executive side, I thought they had made some strong moves. Um, so, you know, maybe they can they can put that together with that, uh, that coaching piece uh, to bring them along, but, yeah, those were two that, um, you know, it didn't quite work out, uh, but, We'll see what uh, we'll see what Dallas might do next year. Andy, another team that you had made a prediction on earlier in the year, and this is one that I kind of shared. I mean, I told anybody that would listen that Jay Gruden would be gone by Halloween, but Jay Gruden's getting ready to coach in a home playoff game. Yeah. How did Washington turn this around? What was the key to their success, and how have they impressed you this year? You know, they've been a really an interesting team, and I think that you know they had you know they had captured. You know, some lightning in a bottle about three years ago with with RG three, obviously, and you know, and I still remember back. Uh, you know, hey, they they also drafted that other quarterback in the fourth round. A lot of people raised their eyebrows. You know, and now you you look at where they are now. You know, what they've been able to do with it. But you know, and, and that really is a, a surprising story. And I think that you know that that gives you know I think some of those teams you know it gives some teams some hope. You know, as to how much they can turn it around. But you know, also you. You gotta, uh, you know, realize that you know they're in a, a division where it's, you know, not sure if it's that division or the AFC South. You know, where I think everybody would want to get in that division if they could. You know, you'd have a, you'd feel like you'd have a puncher's chance. So, um, it's 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 exciting as to what they've been able to do offensively and defensively. And again, numbers wise, it they've really they've really, you know, come out of come out of nowhere to do it. Um, so it's a. You know that's been a, that's been an exciting piece, and you know obviously they they finally put it together and you know won a road game. I mean I know they were winning everything at home, and they won a they won a road game, and who knows if yeah if they can get a good game at home, which I guess they will in the playoffs. You know you got to think they they got a chance to to win one. Now Andy, one of the uh, teams that you had predicted, in fact, to improve this year, and you made the fact that you made the case that they just needed to improve their ability to close out games, and that's Kansas City, and. How were they able to? What were the issues facing them from your study, and and what were they able to do this year to overcome those issues? Well, you know, part of it was you know looking at what they had done with the head coach, you know, and that was really a, a smart hire, you would say, from an organizational standpoint, because you know they had shown really strong uh, numbers on the defensive side of the ball, you know, and as soon as Andy Reid showed up, you know, they they had that that jump, sort of that that really quick jump two years ago. You know, and then I think that was the year though that they ended up losing that playoff game. You know, giving up a bunch of points in the fourth quarter, and you know, just clearly they they were a team that needed to learn. You know, learn how to win. You know, it's one thing. It's kind of like my. You know, you might say Miami a little bit. You may have the talent to win, but it's a different thing to you know to to know how to do that as a team. Uh, and you just you know with 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 the head coach that they brought in, it's you know you could see that you could see the. The, the improvement, all the improvement really needed to happen was on the offensive side if they could hold serve, you know, on the defensive side of the ball. Very similar, like in a similar situation to what St. Louis is, you know, the, a similar situation a couple years ago with St. Louis, but obviously they have not been able to, to turn the corner on the offensive side of the ball. So, you know, I think they're, you know, Kansas City's, uh, you know, just consistent ability to play good offense, you know, it doesn't, Keeps that defense protected a little bit. Doesn't doesn't stress them uh, as much. And you know, it'll be interesting. I, I think they they've got a chance to make a good little playoff run here. And uh, 
probably meet up with the Patriots. Andy, talking about St. Louis a bit, that's a team that Chuck and I have talked about on these podcasts, looking at their defense and how it looks like they're putting together a nice young defense. But it's still, it looks like, and you pointed this out before the season, they need to figure out that quarterback spot, and I don't think they've done it yet. What are your thoughts? You know, my thoughts, first of all, when I, you know, there's a couple, I'll I'll talk about St. Louis and Arizona real quick, but I, I respect the fact that, you know, they made a decision to try and change that quarterback position. You know, and obviously it looks like, you know, again, it hasn't worked out for the long run. And I mean, it looks like they're, you know, getting better play out of a, out of another guy. But, you know, at least they decided and they had isolated, you know, that problem. You know, so from an organization, at least they were, they were good enough to be able to make that decision and make a move. You know, and I think that also just shows, you know, there's not a lot of those guys out there. You know, there's not a lot of guys that you can, you know, Philip Rivers isn't, he's not, there's not 20 of those guys out there in the league. So they, they are at a premium, you know, and you look at, at Arizona, you know, on the flip side and, you know, what they had been able to uh, really make a statement of, hey, you know, we had, uh, we got to the playoffs the year before and we're going with Carson Palmer. You know, he needs to come off an injury, but that's our best chance. You know, what, I, we can't do anything better than that. All we can do is protect him and surround him as, as best we can. And we've kind of seen, you know, what that's, what that's come out. But you look at what they drafted. You know, the, the Cardinal drafted an offensive tackle in the first round and a running back in the third round. You know, so that was that was kind of their stake. It was like, hey, that's what we can do. And, you know, they've been able to, to hold, you know, to hold to that and keep him healthy. And that, that's, a, that's a very strong team. But obviously it's going in a different direction than the, than the Rams for sure. Uh, Andy, before we let you go, um, we're kind of running a little bit low on time, but I can't let you leave without asking you about something that's that I always set time aside to watch, and I think Chuck does too, and that's Army-Navy. You've yeah. been a part of that. What's that experience like, both just in terms of the game itself and, you know, when you were at Army, what's Navy week like? Like, let, Give us some insight on that entire, what that's like. You know, it's interesting because with the way the season sets up and what they do with that game, you know, they'd move that game later. Sometimes, I mean, there were times we had three weeks from our last game to the Navy game, which is really a long, you know, a long time. It gets guys healthy, but, you know, so it's a little bit of a, it can get tough to make it there uh, just just to, to be at your peak because it's like you kind of start training camp, a little mini training camp again. But that game, you know, the atmosphere, you know, what that game represents, you know, I think the, you know, what's on that field, you know, is I, I mean, you know, I'm a little biased having been there, but I mean, it, it, it holds up, you know, it's worth all the hype, you know, it's, it's, it's a real true sporting event. I've, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm on the sideline coach and I look up and you know, I think that's the president of the United States sitting right there in the sixth row, you know, that's, that's <laughs> not the normal type of thing. I mean, you know, sh- shaking, you know, vice president's hands on the sideline. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's something that, you know, again, what that game represents, just like the academies themselves, you know, politics, whatever your politics are and view on things, you know, what those young men and women have decided to do is, is extremely admirable. And it's, it's an amazing, I would, anybody who can try and get there, just, you know, claw your way into that stadium sometime. I mean, you will not be disappointed. I, I guarantee it. Outstanding. Well, Andy, certainly we appreciate having you on here. And uh, I know we are just about out of time here. But we will definitely get you on uh, probably post-Super Bowl just after that just to uh, start getting some of your thoughts as we head into 2016. So get those new predictions ready, and we'll uh, we'll chat on those in a couple months. How about that? We'll 
do. I appreciate it, and Happy New Year's to both of you guys. Thank you. Same to you, Andy. Andy Guider from uh, the Q5.com. You can also follow him on Twitter at aguider17, and I'm always fascinated by his work, Mark. It's great stuff. I mean, obviously, I love talking to him about Army-Navy and his experiences there, but his work with the game maps, I mean, it gives you a great way to not only understand how a game comes together, how a season comes together, but it's a great visual aid as well. I love his work, and people should definitely check it out. And what I love about Andy is that, you know, he's got the data background, but he also has the coaching background, so he understands it from both sides, and I find it fascinating, the work that he does, and certainly, especially, you know, Myself, I'm, I'm kind of a visual person, and so the game maps help me uh, understand things a little bit clearer than a box score sometimes. But uh, let's finish up the show here. We're going to uh, do a quick glossary segment. How about that? Sounds good to me. What do we got this week? Uh, we're talking, and this is, I got to say, this is probably my favorite route in all of football, and this is the pivot route. Ooh, that's a nice one. It's, I, I just love how it looks visually. There's just something about it where it, it just, it, it's, outst- it's, it's awesome. There's nothing yeah. better. Yeah, I mean, what we're talking about here, it's a pivot route. Sometimes people call it a whip route. depends on the offensive scheme. But what it is, if you think about how Julian Edelman got open to win the Super Bowl against the Seahawks last year, that starts on in, inside on a slant and then stops on a dime and breaks back to the outside parallel to the line of scrimmage. It's just a quick little route. You often see it from slot receivers working underneath against man coverage because it's a great route to run against man coverage. Um, it's just a quick little route, and it, what you're relying on from a wide receiver is quickness and change of direction, which are you know two traits that you're going to hear a lot about as we get you know into the off season and particularly into the draft. But what the receiver looks to do breaks to the inside. You want to get that defender, that man defender, on your upfield shoulder, commit into that inside route, and then you just stop as quickly as you can break back to the outside and use that stop and start, that change of direction to generate just enough separation from the defender to give that quarterback a throwing window. And we saw it you know, twice near the end of that Super Bowl last year. Brady had a chance to hit Edelman on that route you know, on their third touchdown drive of the game, and he overthrew it, but he got a chance to do it to beat Darrell Simon to win the Super Bowl, and they connected on it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is your pivot route. Yeah, and this is a route that I think above all else – the footwork and the balance that are required in order to execute it at the highest level, it's critical there. It's not its not about top speed. It's not about uh, your overall size. It's really just your footwork, your agility, and, the, and, and your balance to be able to get in and out of that break as quickly as possible. Yeah, and an understated sort of element to this as well is strength from the wide receiver position. Sure. You don't think of play strength as one of the like core main traits for a wide receiver, but remember, this is a quick route – it's within five yards of the line of scrimmage, so you might have that cornerback kind of draped on you when you go to make that stop and cut. So you've got to have not only the quickness and the change of direction ability to make that cut, but you've got to be able to like shrug that defender off if necessary to continue to gain that separation as you break to the outside. Mark, with, with different routes, you see quarterbacks sometimes make different types of throws in order to put the ball in the best position for a receiver. With with slants, sometimes we see low throws in order to put the ball where a defender can't get it. On this type of route, where's the quarterback trying to put the ball? I mean, basically, you're trying to lead him away from the defender. I mean, your kind of aiming point right there would be as you picture the wide receiver breaking to the outside, if they extend that right hand out, you want to put it out towards that right hand, towards the sideline, and away from the middle of the field. Because, again, if you're anticipating and you have man coverage, this isn't one where you want to put it in the breadbasket. Because if you do that, there's a chance the defender can recover and make a play. Yep. 
So you want to, you know, lead the guy away, you know, from the inside defender, from that man defender. And, you know, ball placement, it is such a critical aspect of quarterback play. I've yeah. got an article up right now on Paxton Lynch and ball placement, and, and it's more than just the accuracy to put the ball where you want it. it. It's demonstrating the understanding of the scheme, of the route, of the coverage, to know what is the best position, what is the best place to put the football, to not only give your, chance, your receiver a chance to catch it, but to either pick up yardage or pick up a first down or pick up a touchdown. Yeah, and this is something that I, I guess just kind of talking about it now, I realized actually uh, would be a great topic just for a longer podcast. So maybe we'll actually do something on this uh, in the off season. Now that I'm thinking about it, I think it would be a great thing to do uh, as we get into uh, the off season here. But we are out of time for today, Mark. It was a uh, quick show, huh? Quick show, basically a quick year and a quick season. We're already in week 17. This is our last show of the new year. I mean, any New Year's resolutions, my friend? Um, I just want to try to be a better Chuck Zada next year than I was this year. That's a good one. What about you? I gotta eat. I gotta eat less cured meat. How about that? <laughs> I eat too much of that stuff. It's probably you, not good for me. You, you and me both. Welcome to the party. Friend. But yeah. we are out of time today, and this is our last show of 2015. We do want to wish all of our uh, listeners a happy, healthy, and safe New Year's, and certainly the best of luck in 2016. Uh, we definitely appreciate all the time that you spend both listening to and reading us every day and every week. Uh, at least for uh, myself. Certainly happy new year to everyone. Mark, any uh, thoughts for you as we close up the year? No, I mean, I'd just like to take a moment to thank all of our readers, all of our listeners for the feedback, the nice things you've had to say about us on Twitter, all the comments that we get. We, we really appreciate it. You guys mean a lot to us. We know that there are guys, fans, men and women out there that, you know, say nice things about us all over the all corners of the internet. We see it. We see all of that and we really do appreciate it. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts and to all of you, just the best of luck going forward in the new year. Definitely. And again, uh, wrapping up here, if you haven't followed us on Twitter already, make sure you do it. IT pylon. If you haven't liked us on Facebook, facebook.com slash inside the pylon. If you do not have inside the pylon.com bookmarked. And if it is not your first stop every day, I suggest you make it so. Chuck Zada and Mark Schofield signing off. We'll see you in 2016.